This is the Apex United Methodist Church podcast. So this morning, uh, we are continuing uh, into our Lenten series uh, called Wondrous Encounters. Uh, Wondrous Encounters is based on a book uh, by Richard Rohr. Uh, It is a daily devotional guide that leads us through uh, the 40 days between Ash Wednesday uh, and Easter. Uh, Easter, of course, is April 16th, and so uh, we are preparing and preparing our hearts, preparing our minds, preparing our bodies uh, for that celebration where we get to remember our most important story, uh, the story that Christ, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, uh, offered us new life, conquered sin and death, and prepared a new way for us. And so Lent really is about that preparation season. It's about uh, creating time and space uh, to encounter God. It's called Wondrous Encounters, as it is an invitation through Scripture and prayer uh, to experience a God anew, God, God in fresh ways. So I know many of you have been journeying uh, through this book with us. Uh, someone this past week sent me an email and asked, uh, where is Esther C? Uh, some of you are like, I don't know that there's a book named Esther C. Um, if you didn't send me an email, uh, I'm judging you because you should have asked that question, which means you're not reading. I'm just kidding. Or you're really smart and you just found it on your own. It is a Catholic lectionary that it's based on. It is based on these readings, daily readings throughout Lent. Uh, Esther C. is an extension of um, our own scriptures, but it's found in the Catholic lectionary, and so that's what I said back to him. It is online, but all these scriptures are there uh, there as well. But there's, it's been a great journey for me and for my family, I know, as we've been trying to incorporate this uh, into our daily disciplines and trying to find ways to encounter God through scripture, uh, through prayer, and through times of reflection. There's a couple observations that have been helpful for me as I've gone through this that have just resonated uh, with my own disciplined life. Uh, One is I have been reminded that uh, the spiritual life, the life of discipleship, is not something that can be solved with a quick fix. Uh, It's not simply you take this book and read it and all of a sudden you are holy. Or all of a sudden you now have just your entire life has changed. Um, You cannot cram uh, for discipleship. Uh, It doesn't work that way. It's a long journey. Uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, who's an author who wrote The Message, a paraphrase of Scripture, uh, calls discipleship a long obedience uh, in the same direction. Uh, Now, cramming also doesn't work uh, for your studies. I realize that. Um, I was an engineer, and I remember every time we got to uh, finals season, I was studying computer science in engineering school, Uh, my wife, who I was dating at the time, would remind me, you have exams coming up. And I'd be like, I've got like 48 hours. Like, I'm good. Like, I'll, I'll figure this out. Um, clearly, that didn't work. Uh, I'm no longer an engineer. I'm now a pastor. <laughs> and the same is true for discipleship. Uh, discipleship is a daily decision uh, to prepare our hearts, to prepare our minds, to prepare our souls, uh, to engage in this long, long, hard journey that is uh, following Jesus. And I hope that uh, whether you're uh, doing this book or not, or using other resources, Uh, that this is either a continuation of daily patterns, uh, weekly patterns, monthly patterns, uh, or a beginning uh, to patterns that will continue to form and transform our lives uh, every day, uh, so that as we continue through this life, uh, we might look more uh, like Jesus. Uh, The second thing that has been helpful for me uh, has been uh, a reminder that discipleship is also not something that we simply can do in one small space or apart from life, uh, in maybe an upper room or in a daily routine or a morning or whatever it may be. Uh, But discipleship has to be integrated uh, into our daily lives, into the everyday life that we live. 
uh, Jeffrey Wainwright, who was a professor of mine at Duke, uh, he has this quote about discipleship and spirituality uh, where he says, uh, spirituality is the combination or the intersection of prayer and living. Spirituality is the combination or intersection of prayer and living. He calls us as people who desire to follow Christ to incorporate uh, into our lives uh, not just uh, reading scripture, not just prayer, not just devotional life that's set apart, or not just worshipful life where we gather in a place like this, but it has to be a lived out faith, a place where we take our, what we learn in scripture, where we take our encounter with God and we carry it into this world. Often I will close service, and I will again this morning, with a benediction that invites us to be a people who, when we leave this place, we are so touched and transformed by God that when people see us, they might see Jesus. And that really is our call, to be a people who carry the practical and the mystical and the spiritual lessons we encounter, the experience we encounter, into everyday living. Otherwise, it is not full discipleship. So that is my hope and my prayer uh, for this season. And my hope and prayer for each of us, for myself, has been that I would encounter God uh, through Scripture. I'd encounter God through prayer, uh, through fasting, uh, through giving to the poor, as we have invited all of us to during this Lenten season. Uh, And then through that encounter, that my life daily might be continuously growing and changing, that I might more more faithfully reflect uh, who God desires uh, for me to be. This morning we're going to be reading about an encounter, and I shared it with our kids a little bit already. That's from John chapter 4. I'm going to invite you, if you will, uh, to open up your Bibles with me to John 4. If you you didn't bring a Bible, there are Bibles in your pews. Uh, We're going to walk through it this morning, and so you can simply leave it open. I'm going to sort of break throughout. It's a long passage, and so I'm not going to try to get through it all at once. Uh, But I am going to invite us to to journey through the Scripture together as we read from John chapter 4, beginning with verse uh, 1. Hear this word from John's Gospel. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, uh, Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, and of course he means there John the Baptist, although it was not Jesus himself but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. We're going to pause right there. I think we've got a map. Can you pull up the map, Steve? What we're going to see here is this is actually a map from about 600 uh, B.C. And it shows us where, this is Israel, uh, it shows us where Judah, which is the southern kingdom, uh, is on the lower half of the map, and the top half of the map is Israel. Now, Israel is the northern kingdom. It's where Nazareth is. Uh, And Judah, of course, is the uh, southern kingdom where Jerusalem is. And so if you know the birth narrative of Christ, you know that Mary and Joseph traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which is just outside of Jerusalem, and that's the path they took. Around 600 or 700 B.C., uh, the Assyrians came in and began to conquer uh, this region. And the region they were most effective at conquering was actually the in-between spaces between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And Steve, look at that next, uh, next map. If you will. Go to the next one. And so this is a, a, a different version of that, make it a little bit cleaner and easier to see. And so Samaria was that place in between where the Assyrians, as they t- 
took people out of that. They also sent families and people back into that region uh, where they married uh, folks in that region, where they carried their religion into that space, worship of other gods like Baal. And they began to enculturate the Samaritan people uh, with their own practices and religious practices and own customs. And their hope was not simply to remove Jewish people from that region, but actually to transform that region so it looks more like the Assyrian people. They wanted to actually uh, culture out of them who they were. And so what happened was this whole region became uh, what's called now Samaria in, in Jesus' time, where these people lived, these Samaritans. Uh, now, who reads Harry Potter? Who's read Harry Potter? So if you need a popular reference, these are like mudbloods, right? They're not wizarding people. They're not purebloods. They're the ones that have dirty blood. And Jewish people saw them the same way. Uh, Jewish people saw these Samaritans as unclean, as not proper, as not fully Jewish. And therefore, those that held to those standards would not uh, interact, would not share, would not engage with this in-between population. And so that's where we find Jesus uh, this morning. So picking it up with verse 7. So of course, Jesus has gone from Judea uh, to Galilee, pausing in Samaria, Samaria uh, at Sychar, at Jacob's well. And what happens in verse 7 is a Samaritan woman uh, came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. And again, we'll pause right there. So Jesus encounters this woman, and, and there's several things working against her. Uh, one, she is a Samaritan woman, and so therefore Jews and Samaritans were not to interact uh, in the most strictest sense. She knew that, she perceived that, and she realized that this man, a Jew, uh, would want nothing to do with her, a Samaritan. Now she was also a woman alone approaching a well in the middle of the day. Uh, there are lots of reasons for that, uh, we're going to come to some of those in a moment, but it would be abnormal uh, for a woman to travel in the heat of the day, in the middle of the day, uh, to a well to draw water. Uh, normally they would come early in the morning or late in the evening and not travel in the hot noonday sun. And so Jesus encountered this woman alone in the middle of the day at a well uh, in a way that would not be normal uh, nor very acceptable. And then verse 10. So Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well, with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. For the water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I may never be thirsty, for I have to keep coming here to draw water. And then Jesus replied in a way that I think that becomes deeply personal for her, in a way that when we encounter Christ, we also experience one of these, deep, these deeply personal calls. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. The one you have now is not your husband. 
What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. There are several things happening in this passage. Uh, one is uh, this encounter with, with Jesus that becomes uh, both the transformation of ordinary things to extraordinary and also the things of abstract things to deeply personal. I think one of the things that I found often uh, when I encounter Christ through Scripture, through prayer, through relationship, is that thing, those things often happen. You know, we receive, uh, often in this context, we receive a holy meal, the Holy Communion, and it's through the ordinary things of bread and of juice or bread and wine where we encounter the extraordinary transforming power of Christ. It's through the ordinary things like uh, reading Scripture or being in prayer or studying Scripture together or even eating a meal together where we encounter the extraordinary promises of God. Sometimes, sometimes it's sitting in a hospital room or sometimes it's at a, at a ball field or simply uh, going out from this place together where we see God at work. And it's in those ordinary things that God often draws us to an eternal message. He talks about water. He says, you are thirsty. Let me give you something to drink. But the drink I will give you is more than what you expect out of this well. It's a drink, it's a flowing of, of living water, of, of water that will provide life, not just for now, but for all eternal, or eternity. What I have to offer is greater than anything this world has to offer. What I have to offer leads us into eternal life. Uh, several years ago, many of you know that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sports fan. I, I like to watch sports. I enjoy watching them with my family, with my kids, uh, with my wife. We often will have people over and we'll watch a game. Uh, last night, uh, our basketball team uh, uh, went to the University of Virginia, uh, did not decide to play basketball. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't so much that they lost, um, but they, it's how, how they lost. Uh, it was not close, uh, which was devastating as, as someone who enjoys them. Um, I realized that was going to be heartbreak for me over and over again, and so uh, I went to grad school at Duke. I mean, I went to grad school because I was called, but going to Duke gives me another option. Um, <laughs> some say it's a cop-out, uh, that I just use both teams and just choose whichever is winning. Uh, I say that's just wise, but that's a different... <laughs> so I still have a little bit of hope in this tournament. Uh, but we, we love watching sports, and, and a few years ago, uh, I remember an interview uh, that Tom Brady gave uh, early on in his career after he had run, won a couple Super Bowls. And Tom, who's a quarterback for the New England Patriots, who is likely at least one of the best, if not the best quarterbacks of all time, and, and how much he has won. Uh, early on, he was asked, people were asking him, you know, you've had great success. Uh, you have won multiple Super Bowls. Uh, you are married to a supermodel. You have you know, more money than you know what to do with. Uh, you know, what, you know, what, is this, what does it mean? Like, what, is it, what does it feel like uh, to be so, uh, so successful? I thought in my mind, what does it feel like for everybody else to hate you? But that's a different, different problem. But what does it feel like? And he, and he said, in a moment of vulnerability uh, that was profound uh, for me in that moment, he said, you know, sometimes I look at my life 
Sometimes I look at all the things that I've accomplished and all the things I've accomplished in sports and the things that the world values, and, and I look around and I wonder, you know, there's got to be more to life than this. There's got to be more to life than this. Again, a guy who had won multiple Super Bowls, uh, had married a supermodel, had, had all the money he could ever need and beyond, realized that there has to be more than life than these things. Uh, soon thereafter, there was actually an interview with uh, Urban Meyer. Uh, Urban is the, was, at the time, the football coach at Florida. Uh, and he was talking with uh, Billy Donovan, who was the basketball coach there. And Urban was almost at a time where he was going to leave Florida for a while to, to concentrate on his family and, and take care of some things at home. And, and Urban was talking to Billy. It was recorded in Sports Illustrated. And they were having this conversation. And, and Urban said, he says, you know, I've been looking at my life. I've been imagining down the road uh, what life will bring. I've imagined sort of as I end, come to the, near the end of my road, uh, he had just won two championships, uh, what I'll say. And I've, I've had this picture, this imagination of me walking to the end of this road I've been journeying on and holding up these two trophies and saying, you know, yay, two trophies. Uh, he goes, and how empty that would feel. <coughs> because the reality is I, I recognize that while you know, sports and while trophies and championships might you know, give us some temporal joy, the reality is that my life is not filled, is not wholly filled by simply these accomplishments. Again, uh, he didn't use these words, but there's got to be more to life than this. I think often what Jesus does for us when we encounter God is he begins to challenge how we define success in our lives. Jesus begins to challenge the choices that we've made and where they've led us. For this Samaritan woman, you know, he looked at her life and said, your life has led to five uh, relationships and now a sixth relationship. Do these choices, do these things lead you to the kind of life that you desire, the kind of life that you want to live? Uh, in our devotional this week, in, in Roar's Reflection on page 60, he writes about this phenomena. As he sums up this passage, this is what he says. He says, of course, the whole point is that unless you experience the Spirit, which Jesus says is the water that I will give, which will turn into a spring within you, welling up into eternal life. He says, unless you do that, the whole thing falls apart. If one has not made contact with the spirit spring of water, we will always define ourselves by non-essentials, by cultural accidents, and by external forms and formulas. This is by non-essentials, by cultural accidents, and by external forms and formulas. Roar says if we don't take time to encounter Christ, if we don't uh, take time to, to fill ourselves with the spirit that leads to eternal life, then our life will be defined by these external things that ultimately will lead to death, not to life. That we measure success by outside cultural norms and not by the, the, the text and the richness of Scripture. So it is only in that place that you will find the spring of life that God offers there's two questions I've been asking myself uh, reflecting on this uh, passage for this morning. The first is, I'm, am I actually creating uh, those spaces to have real, life-transforming experiences with the Spirit of God? Am I creating places for prayer, for Scripture, for relationship that actually might transform who I am? What do those look like? Where are those spaces for me? And if I am, 
Am I allowing those experiences to actually change the way that I live? Am I allowing on my experiences with Christ, my experience with the gospel, my experience with scripture to actually help me to look more like Jesus when I leave this place or that place or those places? How do I define success? How do I find accomplishment? And do those definitions actually reflect the places God calls us to and invites us to? This morning, I actually want to close with a poem. It's by Mary Oliver. Many of you have heard this before. It's, it's called The Summer Day. I'm going to read it and then invite us to reflect on two, two pieces of it. Mary Oliver writes, Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who's eating sugar out of my hand who's moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who's gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? I think Mary Oliver invites us into two places, several places here, but two that, that resonated with me this morning. Uh, one is, she sort of acknowledges, I don't know what a prayer is. <laughs> But I do know how to pay attention. She describes what it looks like for her. I think part of her invitation is for us to pause and pay attention to the places where God shows up. To pay attention to other people where we might see and encounter God. To pay attention to the ways God is calling and inviting us into new ways of being and living. And then that final question is one that always haunts me. And that is, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. What is it? What is it that we plan to do with this life God has given us? And may that life reflect the desires of the world, the desires of our culture, the desires of our own hearts sometimes, or may that life reflect the one whom God sent, the one who laid down his life for us and invited us into new life, invited us into new ways, so that when we do leave this place, when people see us, they would not just see another person walking along the street or eating in a restaurant, but that they actually might see someone changed by the gospel, that they actually might see Jesus. That is my hope and that is my prayer for each of us this Lent and for our work and our desire as disciples of Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen.